It all started with that portable tape recorder I had as a kid. Uh-oh. Then I started pause button editing between two VCRs. Oh, me alive. Oh, my God. The figure's dead. The crazy thing is then I got into radio. Mr. Announcer! The yum. Oh, my God. Thank you very much. After that, I went into TV. My whole life, the tape has been rolling. Which is fine by me, because I always think there's a story to be told. But, a word of warning from everyone around me... Do not give this tape to Earl! Welcome back to kind of a, a thrown-together-at-the-last-minute edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. Hey, everybody. How you doing? I hope everyone is maintaining some semblance of sanity in these very difficult times that we're in right now. This podcast originated as a video live stream that, let's just say, did not go well for technical reasons. I had put a lot of prep into it, a lot of research, did a lot of, you know, did a lot of graphic design to frame it and make it look cool, and it seemed to go well. I thought my end of the presentation went well, and then it, uh, when I looked at the playback, when it was all done. Not so much. Not so much. Um, it would just freeze frame. And, and, and it was a podcast where I was playing various video games and talking about their historical context as part of a larger story. And, yeah, my, my face would freeze, the, the whole screen would freeze, and you would hear a game being played but never see it. So what I did was I went back and I re-recorded the entire thing working from the same notes, working from the same material. Now, I did it the same night, and I recorded it in smaller chunks that could be edited together so I could actually, you know, present the thing in more or less the way that I intended it to be seen. This is the audio version of that. It's about an hour and a half long, and it deals with the early history of Star Trek in video games. And you're talking about two of my favorite things to study from a historical context perspective. So this is a lot of fun. I hope you like it, too. And um, there may be more where this came from. But it was, it was strongly suggested to me by more than one person who tried to watch the live cast that, hey, you know, this needs to be a podcast, too. So you know what? You're right. Volumes and volumes have been written about Star Trek as a television force to be reckoned with, but it's had a somewhat rockier road as the subject matter for video games. And toward the end of this, I think we're going to narrow in on some reasons why that might be. Star Trek's video game origins, well, the origins of the commercial video game industry as we know it, begin in the early 1970s, at a time when Star Trek has been off the air for three years. Now, Star Trek was about a year away from being revived as an animated series, briefly, by NBC and Filmation. But for the moment, it was very much a dead show that had an increasingly rabid following because the episodes were now constantly playing in syndication daily in most parts of the country and found a whole new audience who probably either were not aware of the show in its original time slot between 1966 and 69, or were aware of it and couldn't always catch it 
at that time slot. But the story of Star Trek as a video game IP has somewhat inauspicious beginnings in 1972, starting with this arcade game. Now, despite the artwork on the cabinet and the very generic techno lettering, this was not an officially licensed product. Uh, Paramount Pictures did not offer any blessing to this. It was just rolled out on location by a company called Foreplay. Uh, and the date on the photo, I believe, is September of 1972. Now, the really funny thing about this game is the game that this cabinet, this machine played, had virtually nothing to do with Star Trek, and the game was, in fact, a year old. This upright Star Trek cabinet played Computer Space, or, or it played a bootleg copy of Computer Space, which had been introduced in 1971 by Nutting and Associates after being designed by Nolan Bushnell, future founder of Atari. Now, Bushnell did not really create the game concept himself. It was a TTL logic, a discrete logic implementation of the computer game Space War, which had been played on college campuses since 1962. You have an unofficial game that just slapped the name and a, a kind of amateurish rendering of the Enterprise on a wooden cabinet to make a quick buck. Computer Space was the first coin-op video game to almost get close to the mainstream but not quite breakthrough. That would have to wait for Nolan Bushnell's next game, which was the first one produced by Atari, Pong. Although, very much like Computer Space, Pong was a borrowed idea, borrowed from the Magnavox Odyssey, which had arrived in stores before Pong arrived in arcades. Although there's been some attempt to spin the order in which those things happened over the years, uh, it is known that Bushnell attended a what was called a Magnavox product carnival in May of 72, long before Pong came out. So I, I think there's ample evidence that the Magnavox Odyssey and its, its native mode uh, tennis for two game was the inspiration behind Pong, just as Space War was the inspiration behind Computer Space and... I don't think you can say Computer Space inspired the first Star Trek arcade game, but unwittingly kind of became it. Another thing you'll find out is that Computer Space was not the only game that originated as another game and as someone else's intellectual property before someone came along and slapped the Star Trek name across it. But we'll get to that in a moment. For right now, we want to talk about Star Trek's first licensed appearance as a video game in the arcade. And for that, we warp ahead 10 years to 1982 and this beautiful thing. This is Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator, released by Sega in 1982. Now, incidentally, if you saw a machine that looked kind of like this but different... It's because Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator was offered as a conversion kit for other vector graphics or XY graphics games. And we'll talk about 
the graphics system in a moment. But there was one conversion kit that was specifically aimed at putting the Star Trek graphics on top of the graphics in an asteroids machine, allowing that cabinet to go permanently from being an asteroids machine to a Star Trek machine. It's a very fast-paced game. It's, it, you know, life comes at you fast, even in the world of Star Trek. So let's play the game. It does feature some some sampled speech from the cast members. You have to keep in mind this game came out as Star Trek was on the upswing in the movies. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan had just been released and was a bona fide hit. So obviously you are you are piloting the Enterprise, you are running and gunning, and you're even though in the cockpit version of the game you are, you know, sitting in the captain's chair. going to let me sit in the captain's chair anymore. Even though you're sitting in the captain's chair in the cockpit game, really, you are at the helm. You are doing Sulu's and Chekhov's jobs. So don't give yourself too much of a promotion right off the bat. Klingons will destroy your starbase if you uh, if you let them. And starbase is a very helpful thing to have around because it is the only place that can replenish your shields, your photons, and repair your damage. So it behooves you to find a way to dock there. Whoa! Who was that guy? Okay, now I didn't get a Starbase bonus there because the Starbase was destroyed. Stop. Oh, I thought I had gotten there in time to dock, but uh, I, I guess blew me up with the starbase. Well, it was a good day for the Klingons. It was a good day to die, if you were me. Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator by Sega from 1982. Now, I mentioned earlier that 
the computer space ripoff that had the Star Trek name applied to it was not the only time that had happened. And you have to keep in mind, Strategic Operations Simulator showed up at a time when Star Trek II had made Star Trek a hot property again. Now, Star Trek had already been a hot property again for a while because the 1979 film Star Trek The Motion Picture was merchandised heavily. The 1979 movie had been merchandised to the tune of you know, action figures, coloring books, novelizations, photo novels, photo novels, which were a thing back then because home video was not really a very common fixture in the American home at that point. It was still amazingly expensive. And, you know, record albums, not just the soundtrack, but even the Peter Pan records from the 1970s, the, the kids' children's storybook records, had been re-released with Star Trek The Motion Picture photography on the covers. Getting back to the point, Star Trek The Motion Picture was merchandised heavily because the template had just been set by a little movie called Star Wars. And various video game makers, some of ill repute, took note. This is a game simply called Star Trek that arrived at some point in the late 70s, 79, 1980 perhaps. It was a black and white game. It was an older game from the 70s that had been refitted as a Star Trek game, again, without the blessing of the studio that owns the rights to Star Trek. So you had this trying to cash in on Star Trek The Motion Picture. And also, prior to the arrival of Star Trek II in 1982, there was another bootleg, which is kind of hilarious. It's just called Star Trek 1981, new game! And that colorful rectangle down there that is it's there solely to cover up the name of the copyright holder because this is a bootleg of Williams Electronics 1980 mega hit Defender which is it is a space game but it is about the least Star Trekish space game you could possibly imagine because you have these mutant landers trying to kidnap people from the surface and get them up to the top of the screen and turn them into mutants uh, there's no way to make that work in Star Trek. Although, I actually thought about it. Maybe you could. If you turn the landers into squares and claim that these are the Borg, you know, kidnapping people to assimilate them, maybe. But that's that's really making much of nothing. This was a bootleg game through and through. There's... There's no way to reframe that. There's no way to explain or excuse that. But the funny thing is, even reputable companies were guilty of kind of appropriating Star Trek imagery and terminology. This is the screen that you see when you start up the cartridge version of Star Raiders on the Atari home computers, the Atari 400, the Atari 800, in 1979 is when the game was released. Obviously, this is the movie Enterprise. It's got the squared-off engines. It's got the photon torpedo tube on the front of the ship. So someone had seen a picture of the movie Enterprise on a piece of merchandise and decided, hey, you know what? This would be a great way for our game to start. Even though the game really didn't have that much to do with Star Trek. Or did it? 
So now that we've opened that can of worms, let's address the elephant in the room that some of you have probably, probably been waiting for me to bring up. Star Trek existed as a computer game long before it existed as a console or arcade game. And much like Space War, which I mentioned earlier, the Star Trek game started out as a, a creature of college campus computers and hobbyist microcomputers. But versions of that game did survive into the modern age, and I would argue strongly that Star Raiders is a direct descendant of those games, because in the computer game that I'm talking about, you have a grid, you have a navigational grid that you have to plot your coordinates on, and then you get into a sort of close-up grid where you have to do combat with Klingons. Star Raiders took some of that idea but turned it into a real-time game instead of a turn-based game that could just as easily have been played with paper and dice. And that brings us to an implementation of that computer game that is contemporary with this Atari game from 1979. And surprisingly, it is also <laughs> by a major computer manufacturer. This game was released by Apple Computer, not by a third party for the Apple Computer, but by Apple itself in 1979. It's called Apple II Trek, or simply Apple Trek. We've been assigned a three-year mission to seek and destroy 45 Klingon battlecruisers. Explore, you know, explore planets, seek out new life forms, new civilizations, if you like, you know, if you get around to it, but mainly we want you to destroy 45 Klingon battlecruisers. We will have four bases available. Enter self-destruct password. How about... Uh-oh. Alright, so the, the grid there tells you something about what is in each quadrant. Oh, I got stopped by a star. Well, that's embarrassing. So, going by compass directions and degrees of a circle, you have to plot your course. Let's move six spaces, bearing at 90 degrees, and let's see if we can find some trouble. Let's see if we can find some Klingons. Hey, there's some Klingons, red alert. Ooh, they're already shooting at me. Ow. Alright, I want to fire phasers. We have 2,500 available energy. Let's, let's throw it at them. Let's throw it at them better than that. As you can see, it can be kind of a tedious game if you're used to something that moves in real time, like, say, the Sega game. And, and here's the thing. You notice here, you're keeping track of your shield energy. You're keeping track of your photon torpedoes. There are bases you have to save. Is this really that different from the Sega game? Or are all Star Trek games so far basically, you know, official ones? Although this one isn't, this one isn't official. The computer mainframe game on which this Apple II version is based was never official. It's almost as if uh, Sega took this idea but turned it into a real-time game, you know, where you can do the fancy flying like I was doing and get photon torpedoes fired at you. 
Oh, I destroyed one of the Klingons. Good. Well, now I have only 44 Klingon cruisers to destroy in the next three years. So as you can see, Apple Trek, a direct descendant of the original Star Trek mainframe game, is perhaps not that exciting if you're used to gaming in real time. It's a very faithful implementation of a, you know, a game that was very much a part of the glut of unofficial Star Trek material that came to light in the 1970s. You had fanzines, you had fan publications, you had the first fan films happen in the 70s, believe it or not. The, the show seems to be dead, the fandom seemed to be very much alive, and the fans were ready to more or less take possession of it. And that also led to games such as Apple Trek. But what was the first licensed Star Trek game to put you in command of the Enterprise while you were sitting in your own home? That honor goes to the Vectrex home video game system. Now, you remember we were talking about Sega's Star Trek arcade game being a vector graphics or XY game. That was a very difficult thing to port to a home console until the Vectrex came along. Vectrex was a self-contained system. It had its own screen and it displayed XY graphics just like vector graphics in the arcade game. And when I say vector graphics, we're talking about games like not only the Star Wars arcade game, but we're talking about asteroids and we are talking about ripoff and various cinematronics games there was a whole there was a whole chunk of arcade output pretty much lasting until 1983 or 84 that was vector graphics because vector graphics could be drawn unlike raster graphics which have which draw each line of the screen in sequence now very fast so fast that the human eye can't really see anything except a complete image Vector graphics draw point to point and can draw a line segment between. It's almost like a medical monitor. It was, uh, the Vectrex was very much a novelty bringing that experience home. The package of the game said Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is kind of an odd thing to bring to market just as Star Trek II was going great guns in the theaters. But the, once you load the game up itself on the screen, it simply says Star Trek the game. And maybe that was what they should have called it. But again... Oof. You're taking on Klingons in first person. You're again having to worry about your shields. That's the line on the right at the bottom. Well, that may be... Yeah, you can see it next to where it says 1A, which identifies which level you're on. The line to the left of the level indicator is the amount of phaser energy you have left. That thing that looks like a, you know, one of those salad shaker bowls, that is that's your star base that you're trying to defend. That's where you can replenish your shields and your phasers. Now, you can intercept the incoming fire in this game. It's kind of like the it's kind of like the Star Wars arcade game from 1983 by Atari. Uh, that was also a vector graphics game and one of the best vector graphics games. 
and the ability to intercept incoming fire. Um, oh, I thought I might actually have a chance at doing so. Um, the ability to intercept incoming fire in this game reminds me a little bit of that. Somewhat surprisingly, Milton Bradley announced and heavily promoted the fact, or, well, the fact, their intention to produce a version of this game for the Atari 2600. That never happened. The Atari 2600 version of Star Trek The Motion Picture, or Star Trek The Game, whatever you want to call it, uh, they never succeeded in bringing it to market. And after that, the license to produce home video games based on Star Trek changed hands. Oh, well, I, I shot one incoming projectile down. That's, that's something. So, who was the next lucky holder of the Star Trek home video game license? Well, to answer that question, you really have to look closer to home than Milton Bradley. And by that, I mean you have to look at the Gulf and Western family tree. Gulf and Western was a company that had been around since the 30s or 40s and was very well equipped as far as having cash on hand to the point that its chairman from the 50s onward, Charles Bluthorn, decided to diversify the industries that Gulf and Western was going to have its hands in. For example, in 1966, Gulf and Western bought Paramount Pictures, thus making it a Gulf and Western company. Now, a lot of short histories of the, of the production of Star Trek will tell you that Desilu Studios was bought by Paramount Pictures, but in fact, Desilu was bought in 1967 by Gulf and Western, but since Gulf and Western already had media savvy in-house at Paramount, Desilu was renamed Paramount Television and was, you know, placed under Paramount Pictures. Who was the lucky holder of the Star Trek home video game license covering both consoles and the growing home computer market? was another 1960s acquisition of Gulf and Western. Gulf and Western bought Sega Industries in 1969. Sega had been around for about a decade at this point, and it was co-founded by an American businessman named David Rosen. So Sega had always had an intention of being an international concern. Its sale to Gulf and Western was chiefly at the time a way for Sega to get into the American stock market. And so, when it was time for the license for Star Trek home video games to change hand, now that Star Trek was again becoming a lucrative thing, you know, very much a live license, there was no question that it was going to go to Sega. The money basically would be staying in the company. They would not be paying someone else to develop a Star Trek game or to port Sega's arcade game to home consoles. Sega would be doing it themselves. And that brings us to the Atari 2600 in 1983, just a year after Sega's arcade game was released. Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator, although here it just says Star Trek, was now on your Atari. Playing very much like the arcade game. Now, it's kind of funny to mention that 
<laughs> oh, there you are. <laughs> I, I thought he cloaked for a second, which isn't actually a thing that happens. Oh, is this that minefield again? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess it would be, since I just ran into one. Or maybe this is just a... I think this is just an asteroid field. Uh, either way, it's not a place I want the Star Trek... Uh, I want the Starship Enterprise to be. So can we please get out of here? Thank you, Mr. Sulu. It's kind of funny that the Atari version of this game... ...included an overlay to put on top of the joystick, which, of course, you know, most of us, uh... ...would have knocked off the joystick at the first opportunity, because we're sitting here doing this with the joystick. Oh, here's Nomad. Okay, here's the minefield level. Okay, I'm... ...I'm going to try not to make the same mistake here that I did with the arcade game. Actually, the... I don't think the overlay was really needed, because moving the joystick up, that was your thrust. Yikes. Can I hit the starbase again and top off my tank? Yeah. Oh, not, not Nomad again. Nomad makes me so mad. Whoops. Well, I, I think the no-win scenario got me again. So that was uh, the Atari 2600 version of Strategic Operations Simulator. Really a, a nice little translation of of that game to what was by 1983 generally considered to be an increasingly outdated piece of hardware. So you saw a little bit ago how the Apple II handled the original you know, kind of mainframe formulation of Star Trek as a game. But was it going to handle the the arcade version of it very well? And the answer is actually uh, yes, the, the Apple II version was very good. There were also versions for the Commodore 64, as I remember, and consoles such as the ColecoVision. And let's give it a go. One player. And the Apple II did not have great native sound capability. Well, I'm glad I saved the Starbase. I, I may not have done enough to save myself before I land in trouble again. I, I do like how the uh, Starbases in the Apple II version look considerably more Starbase-y, more like what you see in the movies. Oh, oh no, the Starbase got destroyed. And, and I may soon follow, because now there is nothing for the Klingons to shoot at except me. But apparently I survived. Oh, I have no Starbase to, to dock at. I am in serious trouble. Well, we, uh... We didn't make it. Uh, there, there goes, uh... There goes my GPA at Starfleet Academy. So the, the Apple II version of the game, um, a very nice one. Sega was really, really quite competent at porting its own game to various 
in sundry hardware platforms. And uh, so obviously they had the expertise in-house. Now, going back to the Gulf and Western family tree, by 1984, Sega was in trouble and was actually sold off to one of its rivals in the arcade business, Bally Midway, which is why in 84 you started seeing Midway games like Tapper show up on cartridges for home consoles, but the cartridges were released by Sega. So that's the story there. Sega was at that point more or less a division of Bally Midway, and so it was no longer going to be the source of software coming out of the Gulf and Western and Paramount Empire. For the successor to Sega's license, you have to look no further than a later Gulf and Western acquisition. In 1975, they bought the publishing house Simon & Schuster, which was mainly to get into the book publishing business, but Simon & Schuster did grow a software division. Um, Incidentally enough, Simon & Schuster already owned Pocket Books at the time that it was acquired by Gulf & Western. And of course, Pocket Books took over basically the entire Star Trek print publishing program in 1979 and still publishes, I think it's one book a month to this day. For a while there, at the height of you know, Star Trek's saturation of the media market in the 90s, every series was getting one book a month. So you had, for that period of time, that was peak Star Trek. And they were simply giving people what they wanted. This was the first Simon & Schuster software title under the Star Trek banner, 1985's The Kobayashi Alternative. You can see there, uh, Star Trek novelist Diane Duane was one of, the, one of the writers of the game, so no doubt she probably envisioned the scenario and, you know, set and gave the software authors, you know, a, a good story to build their game around. To James T. Kirk, Captain from Naharis Rahal, Admiral. Now, the subject is the disappearance of the USS Heinlein. Info regarding whereabouts of USS Heinlein may be on any of ten known planets in the Trianguli region. Contact sentient species to obtain information. Prime directive in full force. Area only partially charted. Review computer data prior to proceeding. Good luck and Godspeed. The Kobayashi Alternative is a Star Trek game for the early 80s. And at that point, computer gaming had taken a bit of a turn. It was kind of difficult to get some of the home computers of that era to accurately do arcade-style gaming because it was a lot more work to get them to display the graphics, to play the sounds, and so on, than it was the consoles, which were you know somewhat dumber but more oriented toward gaming. The predominant style for adventure games at this point in the 80s had become the text adventure, um, typified by games like Infocom's Zork Trilogy, uh, Planetfall, The Wishbringer, I, I think it was Wishbringer? I'm trying to remember. Infocom had tons of titles, uh, as well as the official Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game Infocom published. So the text adventure where you received descriptions and, you know, typed in 
directions in English which the software would then parse to I guess look is not a command. Okay, we set a course. You must use accepted Starfleet protocol. Okay. Shields up. <laughs> Let's just see what happens. Yes, sir. Woohoo! The shields are up. I accomplished something. I I haven't really played this game very far. So it's not something I'm going to spend days and days on as you frequently could with the text adventure games. And that was not the only Star Trek text adventure that Simon and Schuster made available. The adventure beyond the charted boundaries of Federation territory, reducing our speed to subwarp velocity in the Prometheus solar system near the great transstellar rift. Our orders are straightforward. This is an exploratory mission. We are to seek out new life and make contact with new civilizations. Where have I heard that before? The unknown Promethean worlds wheel into view on the screen before me, gleaming spheres circling endlessly in the darkness. After all these years, planets still look like toys to me, <laughs> and I could crush them. No, sorry, I'm just kind of riffing there. Planets still look like toys to me, each one small enough to take into the palm of my hand like the models hung from the ceiling in my room at the academy. At times like these, I find myself falling back on a single thought, a schoolboy's lesson drilled into me at the academy with maddening regularity. A fundamental principle which I once hoped was no more than a killjoy guideline cooked up by some sour earthbound Federation desk jockey, but which I have since come to respect as genuine wisdom. The prime directive. You can look all you like, but don't touch. That's not the prime directive. The prime directive is that you don't interfere in the development of an alien civilization. Now, this should be the prime directive that Captain Kirk observes <laughs> around the Green Woman of the Week. <laughs> so, there you have it. Star Trek The Promethean Prophecy came out in 1986 by Simon & Schuster's software division. Um, we're running up on the time here when it was about, it was just before Star Trek IV the Voyage Home was released. Now there is one important thing to note here. Transfiction Systems. This was a developer that specialized in these interactive fiction titles. These are the Lost Adventures of the Starship Enterprise. Press any key to begin. Why you know that last bit just doesn't really roll off the tongue. The bridge. A circular chamber perched atop the saucer-shaped section of a starship. The bridge is the brain of the Enterprise. Your command chair sits at the center, surrounded by stations for your science officer, communications officer, and helmsman. A large electronic viewscreen dominates the room. The only exit by a turbo lift is aft. Lieutenant Uhura listens intently to her earphone. Okay, is she spotifying on the clock? At the navigator station, Zulu monitors the ship's trajectory. Ensign Dwayne Berryman, your young science officer trainee, gazes at instruments on the science officer station. There's a small hollow here. Hello! Obviously, another, um, another game very similar to the interactive fiction titles published by Infocom. Uh, however, you have to, uh, 
You have to keep in mind that at this point, in 1986, the PC, the IBM PC, was gaining a larger share of the home computer market, and it was taking adventure gaming in a different direction. With the greater graphics capabilities that CGA and EGA and VGA afforded, the PC was now becoming a force to be reckoned with as a game machine, and you started getting graphics coming back to adventure games that had previously been text only. So you wound up with things like King's Quest, Space Quest, and, you know, the whole King's Quest series, Leisure Suit Larry. You wound up with, uh, you know, later on, some of the early point-and-click LucasArts games, which were just, you know, wonderful things to behold. And that had a direct influence on the first licensed game built around Star Trek The Next Generation. Star Trek The Next Generation debuted on TV in the fall of 1987, and despite there being plenty of naysayers, as there always are when a new Star Trek series appears on TV or on a streaming service or in any form, really, uh, there's always there are always people who say it's not going to make it, there are always people who are saying it's ruining the entire franchise. It's you know it's somehow going back and ruining your memories of the shows you liked before it was on. But the next generation was an obvious, obvious thing to base new games on, and that brings us to the first PC game built around next gen, the Transenium Challenge. The Enterprise has responded to emergency distress signal indicating terrorist attack on El Dorado, a mining base in the remote Aqualand star system. According to our records, El Dorado is a commercial operation engaged in the extraction of a low-grade fuel called Transinium from an asteroid belt that rings the star system. Now, the little clip, the little animation of Picard talking there, this was actually a, a video grab, a very primitive one, but... You know, they didn't have VLC player. They couldn't just, you know, call up a short sequence and make a looping GIF out of it. So this was actually quite the innovation for this game and other games of this era that used similar techniques. And there are some uh, characters who show up who are original to the game, who were played by people working for the company that made the game, which, again, is Transfiction Systems. I have placed First Officer Riker in evaluative command of all ship operations for the duration of this investigation. During the course of this mission, I will be able to confer with Commander Riker on all matters. I am confident in his ability to handle this difficult situation. Guess, just guess, who you play in this game. You are number one. You are Commander Riker himself. So again, he's <laughs> very, very sketchy graphics and little animations here. Um, what was, it? was that person wearing blue jeans? The Transinium Challenge is attempting to be a point-and-click game. Uh, here we go, Transfiction Systems. It's attempting to be the kind of point-and-click game that... Uh, some of the Sierra games, like in the King's Quest series, had been, and some of the early LucasArts games were. But it's not quite as successful 
So I've finally been placed in the captain's seat. But this mission sounds pretty rough. People live by their own laws out here on the frontier. They may not be too willing to assist the Federation. I mean, they might be barbarian monsters who just sit around in the woods and make pizza all the time, Riker. It's unconscionable. So you can go to the transporter and beam down. Yes, let's choose only two. Oh, okay. Worf, you're going, Mr. Red Shirt, at least in Season 1. And uh, we better take Dr. Crusher just in case there are any wounded after the uh, attack. And here we are beaming down against the, these funky little animations. Laid out with stark precision and an almost mechanical sense of color and pattern, the room might be part of a military base. The sole anomaly is a handsome Siamese cat carefully watching all activity with a constant low purring. Okay, I'm going to call it. The cat is responsible for the terrorist attacks. So that was the Transidium Challenge. That was the first licensed Star Trek The Next Generation video game. It was far from the last, but earlier we were talking about fanzines and fan-made productions and publications, and that also extends into the realm of software. This is Trek Trivia Volume 1, released the same year as the Transidium Challenge. Obviously, a, a very simple MS-DOS game that Apogee Software Productions came up with. Shareware by Scott Miller. This is your chance to test your knowledge in the world of Star Trek, the most popular TV series of all time, according to TV Guide magazine. Oh, it's a shareware program, and you remember shareware, don't you? Please send the author of this program enough money at that... Uh, at that address in Texas, <laughs> make checks payable. You can order all 10 volumes and pay only $30. Is that a steal or what? Who played the character of Yeoman Janice Rand? I believe that was Grace Lee Whitney. Which race of aliens use their spacecraft to construct a huge web-like trap made of pure energy? But it's not Organians, Zetars, or Vulcans. It's Tholians. How many different one-hour Star Trek episodes were aired on television during Star Trek's original run in the 1960s? 79. Oh, good! He knows. The Menagerie counts as two episodes, and The Cage never aired. Vulcans have... Yellow... Oh, I thought they had yellow-colored skin. Anyway, this, this is Trivial Pursuit, moderated by a computer, and all the trivia questions are about Star Trek. What's not to love about that? The funny thing is, this, the late 80s, this was before the internet existed anywhere except a handful of college campuses. So stuff like this could fly under the radar. You did not have Paramount representatives getting on local bulletin board systems and, you know, seeing if anyone was making a buck doing, you know, shareware Star Trek trivia games that were being sold by Floppy. So instead, you had... You know, the BBS scene was a place where you could still make a buck doing it, or you could just do stuff for the love of it, which, you know, by the way, the logbook started as a series of files that were handed around from BBS to BBS. That's how they started. They were episode guides. That's why it's the logbook. And that brings us to the following year, 1989. 
Now you notice that we did just cover the very first Star Trek The Next Generation computer game, but for consoles, the, the console roost was now ruled by the Nintendo Entertainment System. And in 1989, uh, especially with the second year of Next Generation having been somewhat hobbled by the writer's strike, causing it to premiere months later than usual and actually air a shorter season. The focus at Paramount was on Star Trek V The Final Frontier, also known as the one where Kirk asks why God needs a starship. And did you know this? You could have played Star Trek V as a video game on your NES. And here it is, Star Trek V The Final Frontier, a game created to be released in 1989 and never released. The release of this game was canceled, possibly, possibly, I'm not saying definitively because I don't know, possibly because the movie did not get good word of mouth and did not do as well in the theaters as Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. But maybe the game had something to do with the fact that the game wasn't released also. Cybok and his army have taken control with two L's of the Nimbus Three outpost, Paradise City, and have imprisoned the three diplomats. The Enterprise, upon urgent command from the Federation, has departed to save them. Here we go, departing to save them. Okay, that was actually kind of cool. <laughs> Set phasers to stun. Now... You may be surprised to learn that rather than being Captain Kirk in this game, you are Mr. Sulu! Keep in mind, Sulu did get some, some running and gunning in, in Star Trek V, so... He is an action hero, but the game... Well... Oh, Sulu's in bad shape. Oh, Sulu's in dead shape. I'm sorry, Mr. Sulu. Oh, my. Sulu is out of energy. He beamed up to the Enterprise. <laughs> it's not that he's dead. He's out of energy. <laughs> A wild Sulu appears. He fainted. Sulu has exhausted all his physical energy. It has been replenished by Dr. McCoy's medical expertise. He is able to continue his assignment. We'll see about that. Get back down there, Mr. Sulu. The sad thing is, despite all the ground I covered. Run, Sulu, run! Kill, Sulu, kill! Oh, here, here we are in Paradise City, where, um, I wish I could remember the Guns N' Roses lyrics, because they would probably be more fun than this game. Because really, I, I think you're detecting the same problem I am here. There's very little here that a lot of other games on the NES wouldn't already provide you, as, as far as gameplay experiences. Sorry, I'm not doing that. The The funny thing about Star Trek V as a game is that 
Later in the game, you are playing Scotty, and you're climbing through the infrastructure of the Enterprise, as Scotty is briefly, very briefly, seen to do in the movie, before he knocks himself out on some kind of an overhang. And the funny thing is, if anything happens to Scotty, and, you know, you know, or Sisulu has exhausted his energy, it says, Scotto, not Scotty, but Scotto, has exhausted his energy. So we now fast forward one more year to 1990, the Star Trek The Next Generation PC trivia game, just as, um, just as unofficial as the Trek trivia game that had come out a couple of years before. Uh, this is a shareware game. That means that if you use and enjoy this game, I request a small payment in the form of a registration fee. All right, places in Contagion, the technologically advanced planet of Iconia. Yeah, Iconia. I love that episode. Obviously, this is a very similar sort of trivial pursuit thing. It is focused entirely on the next generation, which that's right up my alley. Who plays Jean-Luc Picard in the series? Really? Who plays Deanna Troy's mother? And Marina Sirtis does not play Deanna Troy's mother. Uh, who do you think she is? Brent Spiner playing all of Data's relatives? So again, we were um, we were still under the radar here in the BBS ecosphere, being able to get by with these very unofficial shareware titles, such as this game. However, the possibly the golden age of Star Trek gaming was about to begin by way of games such as Star Trek 25th Anniversary, which was released in 1991. Now, the 25th anniversary of Star Trek was a... it was a reasonably big deal because you had, uh, you know, you had a marathon special showing the top ten fan-voted episodes. You had Spock showing up on Star Trek The Next Generation's fifth season in a two-part episode, which itself was kind of a teaser for Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, the last movie to feature the entire original cast. Um, some of them would show up in Star Trek Generations, but far from all of them, because they felt like they had, they had made an adequate exit. We also got this game from Interplay on several computer platforms, as well as uh, on consoles ported there by Konami's Ultra label, celebrating the 25th anniversary of Star Trek. However, this game seemed to latch on to uh, something that the movies couldn't deliver on, and something that no one would try to deliver on for ooh, another... 10, almost 20 years, which was, let's roll back the clock to the original series. Let's do a story in a game set during that era. And, and making it very explicit that that's the era of the game with the graphics. So this was an NES game that actually started to deal more with story than with action. And it, by this time, the adventure gaming paradigm had changed again, thanks to games such as The Legend of Zelda. So you, you kind of have Link and Zelda to thank for Star Trek finally getting a decent game. 
that dealt somewhat with exploration. A couple of years later, the NES also had a, a decent Star Trek The Next Generation game, courtesy of Absolute, which was um, sort of an offshoot of Activision. And Star Trek The Next Generation and the movie Star Trek Generations also got cartridges to themselves on the Nintendo Game Boy. I don't, uh, I don't have pre-records of those. But gradually what we were seeing was more of an emphasis on story. But finally with the sort of the action RPG genre that had been you know, really cemented by The Legend of Zelda, you had a way to incorporate story and arcade style action successfully into the same title. That was kind of the way forward for Star Trek gaming for quite a while. Now, ironically, though, um, Star Trek gaming kind of looped back on itself in 1999, jumping forward further to a little game called Starfleet Command, which was released by Interplay for the PC. Starfleet Command was a a pretty sophisticated game based on a very old tabletop game. One of the originally unlicensed, and then, then it became a licensed product of the 1970s, was a tabletop uh, starship war game called Starfleet Battles. And it had spawned, you know, kind of, really kind of became its own genre in a way. Um, it was a very popular game for tabletop wargamers, and Starfleet Command was basically Starfleet Battles, now moderated by a computer. You had graphics moving in real time, you had, you had to make decisions a lot faster, because Starfleet Battles was turn-based, kind of like that original mainframe game. Starfleet Command, on the other hand, um, stuff happened to you a lot faster. You didn't have the giant hex grid space map with miniatures on them, which I love the miniatures. I was, I, I confess to being a big Starfleet Battles fan when I was a teenager. You know, I had tons of the little metal miniatures, uh, some of which were classes of starship that never showed up in the movies, never showed up on TV, and they were, they were either cool designs or they were really terrible designs. But either way, I was, I was very happy to, you know. Uh, play Starfleet battles with friends of mine, move the ships around the hex grid, and you know fight entire wars that way. So it's kind of funny that right before we got to the 21st century, Star Trek gaming looped back to the 70s in a way. Except now the, the game master is the computer, and so life comes at you really fast. And at the time, this was a this was a hugely popular game, and virtually everyone recognized its origins. Everyone who had been around for that era of Star Trek fandom recognized the origins of this game, and loved it all the more because of it. So there you have kind of a kind of a potted history of Star Trek as a video game IP. It's been kind of a rough road. Star Wars is a lot easier to build video games on. There are scenes in virtually every movie that are either perfect for video games, or once you got into the 90s and got into the prequels, 
you had entire scenes of the movie that were practically designed to become video games. And as such, you know, Star Wars is an ideal video game IP. Star Trek is a tougher nut to crack because Star Trek comes from the small screen, a medium where you cannot often afford to show elaborate space battles. Of course, these days it's, it's a little different. You can occasionally show them. But it's, it, it's still got to be in the budget, and it's, it's going to be something that you're saving up all season for. The original Star Trek and much of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager wasn't about pew-pew-pew with phasers. It was about diplomatic negotiation. It was about living up to your own ideals. It was about being the best version of humanity you could be. It's a little hard to do that in a video game. It's hard to really work a moral lesson into a video game and make it an integral part of the gameplay. Which is why I think so much of Star Trek gaming has focused on flying ships really fast and blowing up other ships even faster. But in more recent games such as Star Trek Online, story can be made a bigger part of it, and I think that really started with, if not the Transinium Challenge, then with Star Trek 25th Anniversary, pointing the way toward getting the Star Trek message into the fabric of a Star Trek game. The early days were very much like the early days of Star Trek, a lot of cowboy diplomacy, and you know, a lot of wagon train to the stars, only this time maybe is kind of like the Oregon Trail to the stars.